You're listening to Nutrition Matters Podcast with Paige Smathers, Registered Dietitian Nutritionist. Hey everyone, it's Paige, your favorite nutrition podcaster and dietitian. Nutrition Matters Podcast explores what really matters in nutrition and health with a sensitive and realistic approach. This podcast relies on the support of listeners like you and needs donations to keep this project running. To help support the podcast, please consider making a donation at pagesmathersrd.com slash podcast. If you find this episode interesting, engaging, or helpful in your life, please consider donating, sharing with friends and family, and leaving a review on iTunes. You can leave a review about this podcast straight from your podcast app, search Nutrition Matters Podcast, click reviews, and then write a review. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at Paige Smathers RD if you'd like to have a little more food for thought. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to another episode of Nutrition Matters Podcast. My name is Paige Smathers and I am your host. And today I have the fabulous Marcy Evans with me today discussing a very important topic that is near and dear to my heart as a registered dietitian. Uh, The topic is digestive health. And Marcy is an expert in this. She's been giving talks for, throughout the last few months about the intersection of digestive health and eating disorders, and she has just gathered all this, all these amazing resources and information together to be super helpful as we as we navigate the the current trend in our world, which tends to kind of. Um, a lot of people are talking about digestive health. A lot of people are encouraging people to just willy-nilly cut things out of their diet. And in this episode, we really dive into that and talk about um, the pros and cons of that approach and also some other things to look at as well. So you won't want to miss this episode. We talk about squatty potties. We talk about probiotics. uh, We talk about bloating and gas. um, Talking about sort of recovering from chronic dieting and what that might look like in our digestive system. We talk about the brain-gut connection, and this is just fascinating stuff. It's really uh, kind of cutting edge and new in the research, and so there's so much more we have to learn about these things, but uh, there's there's some really fascinating things to learn about gut health. So I'm really excited you're joining me for this episode. And before we do that, I just want to make sure that you all know a few things. The first is my online course. And if you like what you hear in this podcast, I would really encourage you to check out the course. If you'd like to kind of take healing your relationship with food to the next level, you might really enjoy this this 10-week, really in-depth look at how to kind of bridge the gap from dieting over into this more intuitive eating kind of gentle approach to nutrition and health that we talk about in this podcast. I kind of take you through those stepping stones of how to get there. So this is um, a 10-week online course, and if you'd like to check it out, it's pagesmathersrd.com slash course. And then also join us over in the Facebook group for the podcast, which is uh, just search Nutrition Matters Podcast in the Facebook app or on the website, and you will find our group and just request to join. And I think that's about it as far as announcements and things that I wanted to make sure you knew about. Um, as always, if you're willing to hop on on uh, iTunes and leave a review for me, that's always appreciated. And with that, let's get into our conversation today with Marcy Evans, who's a registered dietitian in private practice in Boston. 
Hi, Marcy. Welcome to Nutrition Matters Podcast for the third time. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Paige. It's so nice to be here. Yeah, it's so it's always great talking with you. And when I saw you starting to do these presentations about this particular topic that we're going to talk about today, I knew at some point I wanted to get some of your time to just talk about this super important topic on on my podcast. So I'm just grateful you're here. I know that this topic is so relevant to so many people. So, Oh my gosh, this is so cool for me to be able to come here and talk about it. It is, it's amazing. When I started presenting on the topic of, of looking at disordered eating and GI disorders, even though I saw it all the time in my clinical practice, I was actually really surprised by the number of people who wanted to engage in this conversation, like the number of people who reached out and were like, oh my gosh, this is my experience, or clinicians who were like, this is my experience, that it's just been validated over and over what an issue this is. And um, it's it's not like something that's making headlines, but now that I've started talking about it, it's it's been amazing how many people really, really resonate with it. So I'm, I'm really glad to be able to talk about it here. Yeah, it's so important, and sometimes people in the world of, of GI disorders don't really connect or don't really maybe have training in eating disorders and disordered eating and then vice versa, but they totally intersect, and I feel like this is a growing trend right now, too. Um, if we want to just take kind of a giant zooming out kind of big picture look at this, the way I see it, and I'd love it, love to hear your thoughts on this, Marcy, but the way I see it is... You know, back a few decades ago, it was totally socially acceptable to be, you know, on some on some really restrictive diet and people, you know, kind of it was very normal to talk about that and to do that. And maybe all your friends were doing it. And then slowly there's been this this move toward um, I think for a while, especially with social media, it seemed like it was a move toward clean eating as as and I use that in quotes um, as the the focus or the goal and not really calling it dieting anymore, but it's sort of dieting in disguise, right? And then we've sort of moved, I feel, even beyond the clean eating thing, I feel, I think now we're seeing a lot of, um, oh, well, I'm only cutting this out because it, it, I'm allergic to it, or I have an intolerance, or it gives me brain fog, or some of these very kind of vague, I mean, obviously an allergy is not a vague thing if it's diagnosed properly and things like that. But some of these vague sort of symptoms that you're relating to particular foods, a lot of DIY digestive health conversations going on. And obviously, I didn't do a very great job of talking through every single trend that's happened. But this is sort of what I see is going on right now currently is we don't really admit to dieting. It's sort of taboo to say, yeah, I'm on a diet. But it sort of is taking some of these different forms, one of which right now seems to be some do-it-yourself digestive health investigating. What do you, what do you think about that? What would you oh, add? I, I absolutely see that as well. You know, what, what we used to be socially acceptable in the dieting world has become a bit less socially acceptable, right? So much so that dieting companies are totally... Uh, changing their marketing strategies um, and and co-opting language from the anti-dieting movement and body positive movement, and 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 then people get smart and they sort of figure it out and they're able to talk about you know things like clean eating and sort of identify ways in which that's just like another diet undercover. 
But we are so in the habit, I think as a culture, unfortunately, of trying to work out so many of our problems unconsciously through managing our bodies, right? And and specifically managing our food and that it just shows up in all these different shades. And I think the, the level of discomfort that we have with ourselves, you know, to, to have a concrete solution is, is very appealing. So if somebody notices that they're feeling bloated, you know, it's completely socially acceptable to be like, you know, well, why don't you try going off gluten? Um, and so it's, it's this, I think, open door for people to try to fix themselves. And it, it kind of gets covered up in the language of digestive health um, in, in trying to be as healthy as possible. And, um, and I think it's, it's important to say, Marcy, that we're not like anti-health, you know, we're not, we're not saying you're not allowed to, to be, you know, gently concerned about your health or to focus on that in a gentle way that's right for you. And, and I, that's one of the criticisms I get of this podcast is that I'm saying, you know, throw health out the window. It doesn't matter. That's, that's <laughs> definitely not where, where yeah. I'm coming from on this yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good to know that's the that's some of the feedback that you've gotten. Um, and I and I, you know, I chuckle only only a little bit, you know, in that you know I'm I'm a dietitian. My my two degrees are in nutritional science. Um, I'm certified as a personal trainer. You know, I, I certainly my my background is in health and wellness. And I think that that criticism speaks to how hard it is for individuals and for us sort of as a culture to sort of figure out the line between what is a reasonable pursuit of taking care of one's physical body and when that becomes an agenda or a vehicle to attend to other parts of our our well-being, right? So whether it is a way to feel a sense of control or stability in one's life, whether it's a way to feel esteem and confidence, whether it's a way to channel anxiety, that of course it's wonderful to take care of your physical health, your mental health, emotional health. I I absolutely want that. That's sort of what my career is dedicated towards and where it gets sticky is when it is unconsciously used to manage something else. And that can be very hard to parse out, just like it can be very hard to parse out what is happening in one's body when it, when a person is not feeling well in their digestion, right? That is a real thing. I don't ever wanna minimize my client's experience. If they're having pain in their stomach, they're having pain in their stomach, right? Um, and I wanna talk about that. Um, but yeah, I'll rather rather than sort of keep keep launching forward, I'll I'll put a pause there, and we can we can see where we want this conversation to go. No, I think that's beautifully said, Marcy, and I completely agree. And I just whenever we're talking about a semi-controversial issue, I like to just kind of acknowledge what someone listening might be thinking. Like, okay, are they going to tell me that because I have this this and this intolerance that I'm a bad person or that I should feel ashamed of myself? I think. The, the obvious answer there is absolutely not. Our goal with this conversation is to kind of shed light on on some of the problematic ways that that type of 
approach to your health can go and maybe some some other angles to take and some other ways to view or to look at your health and to maybe not always blame your your stomach ache or your brain fog or your whatever symptom on food maybe take a look at what else could be going on is sort of I think what I'm trying to do here is just say hey there's a there's a, a some other things you might want to look at too absolutely yeah that there is you know when it comes to what's happening in our gut that it is um, a very complicated process because there are so many different facets to consider and the reason that is is because our entire digestive system is is innervated by your nervous system so your whole nervous system goes and feeds into your gut and what that means is that what's happening for you mentally and emotionally is literally getting transmitted down into your stomach, down into your intestines. And so the reality is your emotions are deeply impacting your physical health, really right down in your center, right in the core of your body. And when we are having a problem with digestion, often we're just thinking about the food that we put into our body, right? Literally that pipeline from mouth to stomach and how that's impacting things. That's relevant. That's not to be ignored. We're not saying throw it out the window, but you have this other pipeline coming from your brain that goes right down into your gut. And that is equally valid to consider and to, and to wonder about and to, and to hold in mind. Yes. Very well said. Again, I love that. Okay, so let's get into, so let's set the stage here. So Marcy, you have spent months and months, maybe even years, I'm not sure, researching this, preparing for kind of almost like touring the country from what I understand, talking about this, this topic. Um, and, and the topic we're, we're, that you've been hitting on in those conferences and in your talks has been the intersection of digestive health with eating disorders. Now, I kind of hesitate using the word eating disorders. I mean, I use it all the time on this podcast, but I hate to use it because I don't want to lose the person who says, oh gosh, she's talking about eating disorders again. That's not me. Turn off the episode. Um, right. right, right, right. Because, because like, like we said earlier, this is, this whole do-it-yourself digestive health thing is happening all around us and it's it definitely intersects with eating disorders but it just intersects with our current trends and our current culture as well so you've spent lots of time researching this and um, you recommended a book that I ended up reading and just was like my my mouth was open the entire time just like in shock read you read gut oh yeah I read it so good so good and I loved her I you could like hear her little accent come through (laughs) yeah it was so good um and I learned I learned so much so I'm not even sure like how to focus this conversation because there's the book there's the there's the intersection between um, eating disorders and digestive health there's this trend that I'm seeing that I'm concerned about uh, I think it's all super important, but we only have a certain amount of time. So what what do you think is most important to spend our time on today in regards to this huge, broad topic that you've been researching extensively? Sure, it is a broad topic. So so I'll, I'll share some some thoughts and things that I feel like are pretty important. And you, you feel free 
as this sort of um, master of ceremonies here to interrupt me at any time. All okay. right. I'll wear my MC hat. Sounds good. Exactly. <laughs> so, so I'll back up a little bit and say, yes, I am an eating disorder specialist, but don't hang up this podcast because we'll talk about it, how it makes makes sense and is important, I think, more broadly. Um, but my interest in this topic really happened out of my clinical experience in that nearly all, not all, but nearly all of my clients with eating disorders and eating disorder histories were having this sort of unremitting GI issues that we just could not seem to get to the bottom of with all kinds of bloating and constipation and irritable bowel syndrome syndrome and, and all kinds of symptoms that were bothersome. And we were feeling really kind of stuck because the last thing that you want to do with someone who's in recovery from an eating disorder is put them on a, on an elimination diet. And often an elimination diet is kind of like the, the first protocol, the first line of defense against any sort of GI issue. That's kind of the go-to. And Marcy, just in case someone doesn't know what an elimination diet is, will you just define that real quick? Sure. Yeah. So, so essentially kind of what the standard protocol is, is that you, you keep a food journal, which I don't do with most of my clients and you sort of study all the symptoms out. And then, um, depending on the protocol, essentially, cause there are lots of different protocols, you're taking out, um, a large amount of food and food groups, you're removing all of these foods that are common allergens, common irritants, commonly in intolerated. Um, and that doesn't mean it happens all the time. It just means that when it does happen, these are the kind of most likely candidates that you take that out of your diet and then you slowly and systematically add one thing in at a time to determine what is causing the problem. That that intervention for anyone with an eating disorders history, or I think, I mean, I, I don't use them at all regardless, um, but take someone who has a long-term dieting history or has a really chaotic relationship with food or a really sort of fraught relationship with food, um, an elimination diet can be a disaster. It can be really harmful. I'm not saying it's harmful all of the time. I would never say that. I'm sure there are people listening who maybe who have done an elimination diet and they learned a lot and was really helpful. But in my clinical experience, I just felt like, oh my gosh, this is this is causing more harm than good. And so I was like, gosh, what what are the other options? What what can we do? And so I ended up reaching out to a colleague of mine who's a dietitian in the Boston area. Her name is Lauren Deer, and she's a fantastic digestive health dietitian. And so we ended up swapping supervision because as a digestive health dietitian, she was seeing all of these clients who had developed disordered eating or had eating disorder histories. And so we were seeing it on both sides. And so, you know, she was sharing with me a ton of information, really opening up my eyes to a lot of information on the digestive health world. And I then started digging into the research and I was like, Lauren, we have to speak on this. So we developed a proposal together, which when you develop a proposal to give a talk, you are then really forced to get really into the details of the research and really sort of organize your ideas and your thoughts. And I learned a ton in this process. And we've given a couple of talks together. I've given a couple of talks on my own. Um, and, and done some interviews on podcasts and stuff and stuff. So that's a little bit of, of the background to where we've gotten. But where I think the the conversation and I could give you a ton of fascinating information on the digestive health and the intersection between digestive health issues and eating disorders. And, and maybe we'll do that at another time. But that specific con uh, content is 
absolutely mind-blowingly fascinating. It is. I can attest to that. I heard you speak in January and it was so fascinating. It's, I mean, it's like when you start uncovering this stuff and unpacking it, you're like, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. But where this really applies, I think, to um, more people, not just people who have a history of an eating disorder, is a couple of places. One is related to the connection that I was talking about earlier between your head brain and your gut brain. And that connection is really having to do with your emotional well-being. And what we see is that people who are really at risk and more vulnerable to developing issues with their digestion that seem impossible to diagnose. So they don't have celiac disease. They don't have Crohn's disease. You know, they don't have a specific disease that can be diagnosed. They just seem to have these cluster of frustrating symptoms that a common denominator is that that person also tends to struggle with anxiety and depression. Not always, but a lot of the time. So it's certainly possible that you have someone who doesn't maybe have an eating disorder, um, but maybe they are emotionally and temperamentally at risk. You know, there's someone who, um, like myself, tends to feel stress stronger. You know, I am by nature, my wiring is, is as a high, highly anxious person. And so, you know, I'm, I'm someone to, who is at risk of having kind of a highly anxious gut. And so that really plays into it. The other thing that plays into it is a bit of what we were talking about earlier as well, is this unconscious, and I, and I do believe that happens for a lot of people very unconsciously, way in which we sort through our problems by managing our food. And one of the things where this gets so slippery is that we live in a culture where we are praised for doing so, right? So somebody runs a 10K and they post it on Facebook and they get a ton of likes, right? There's nothing wrong with running a 10K. There's no judgment. It's not, a, it's not necessarily a, a bad thing, right? But the point being is that we live in a culture where there are so many secondary gains to managing your body. So you get the, the gain of saying, I ate more fruits and vegetables, that's healthy for my body, I got vitamins and minerals and fiber, fantastic. But then you also get this self-esteem game, right, by someone saying, good job, that's awesome, you're doing right. And that is gonna give you a boost to your mental and emotional well-being temporarily, right? So um, if you go on a quote-unquote clean eating diet that takes all of the stuff out of your diet, it, there is an increased likelihood that you are going to perhaps temporarily feel better for a variety of reasons, including the emotional benefit that you feel that you are doing something right and good that is giving you a thumbs up for those people around you. That is right? so true. Yeah. And you can't underestimate how how much that will affect your mental and emotional well-being, that praise you get from your from people around you. Yeah. And, and whether or not it's overt praise or whether it's sort of imagined praise inside of your mind, right? That self praise, I'm doing good, right? And, and that produces literal physiological changes inside of your body. And it is impossible to unravel the difference between what is a, a, a physical improvement 
due to those changes, those objective changes that perhaps you made to your nutrition, taking something out, removing an entire food group um, versus sort of the, the, the sort of pride that you feel that you're quote unquote getting things under control, right? So, and often, yeah. Go ahead. One thing I was going to say is when, when this comes up in, in practice for me with, with my clients, when and if, you know, there's, there's sort of this question of, okay, what this symptom you're describing, I'm going to dig into that. Or is this, is this a food thing? Or perhaps could this be your association to that food or the way that you relate to that food? You're really anxious about bread. So you eat it and you get a stomach ache. Is it the anxiety about the bread or is it the gluten or is it, you know, who knows what, what aspect of the bread is, is causing those symptoms for you. It's a very delicate thing to bring up with people because there is this tendency for someone to say like, oh, so you're just telling me it's all in my head. Like, great, you know? And, and so I just anticipate someone listening might be thinking, okay, so they're saying that, you know, this physical symptom I'm experiencing is just all in my head. So I just need to not think that way, you know? Mm, yeah. And the reality is thoughts that we have in our head create real physical experiences, right? So we're not so, saying the physical experiences are false. No, yeah. No. Physical experience isn't false. It's not made up. It's it's not absolutely not. That would be if someone took that message away, I would feel really really badly about that because that's actually unfortunately a lot of the messages that some of my clients have received from certain gastroenterologists who are like, uh, eh, you know, if you have an eating disorder, that means it's all in your head and this is all sort of made up. But we're really saying the exact opposite. That is the incredible capacity to have a thought or an experience an emotion and that that lives in our body in a very real way that deserves acknowledging and exploring and trying to understand, right? And there are very real instances in which certain foods don't work for certain bodies. You know, there are a fair number of people who are legitimately lactose intolerant, you know, every single time they have yogurt, every single time they have a glass of milk, every single time they have a piece of pizza, they, they're sick. That's a real thing. Of course, that's a real thing. Um, and it can be complex trying to figure out how much of it is a specific food versus how much of it is one's relationship to food and the fears associated with it and often takes um, I think trust of working with someone to to sort that out to kind of get to the bottom because there I do a coaching with a lot of people and sometimes we learn wow as it turns out every time you eat x that's a clear symptom um, let's sort of experiment and play around with that yep uh, so, so true and that book we were mentioning in the beginning she talked about some really interesting emerging research about you know the all of the our gut flora and how that perhaps might affect the way that even even our mood. I mean, there's so many elements of of our gut that we still are just barely scratching the surface on, in understanding. And yeah. so I think it's just useful as we're navigating our health and our bodies and the way that we feel. I just think it's useful 
to, to question that little thought that comes in that says, oh, maybe I should just cut out that food. That's maybe not the, maybe, maybe that's something that you need to do. But also I, I personally prefer to explore as many other options as possible beforehand, because we all know what happens when you restrict a food. It's no different if you have a have an intolerance or a symptom associated with it, you're still going to have the the problem of, oh, now I think about that food all the time. And now when I'm around that food, I have no idea how to behave because it's so off limits. And we do this bizarre, um, we just create a really bizarre and unhealthy relationship with it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it can become a bit of a vicious cycle. And that's one of the things that, that I've observed in clients who have you know, taking something out and taking another thing out and then another thing out is that we, it kind of takes on a life of its own. And the way that I approach any type of sort of investigative work with my clients in terms of foods that might not be tolerated is that I want to have a multifaceted approach and that we are going to, and I'm going to explain what that means. And the goal is to remove as few foods as possible. And by multifaceted, what I mean by that is really taking an inventory of all of the potential things that impact digestion. So for instance, I have a client who I worked with for um, a long period of time. She was in recovery from bulimia. She was doing really well and she was no longer um, using eating disorder behaviors. And what she noticed was that she started really having some pretty bad stomach pain. She was having a lot of bloating. She was constipated. And she really genuinely, for the best of intentions, wanted to figure it out because she was in pain. She wasn't doing well. And at that point, we had stopped working together, long story short, because she was doing really well in her recovery. And I didn't know about the digestive stuff. It sort of occurred after our work together. And she went and did a consultation with an, uh, a, a specialist. And this specialist asked her to go on an elimination diet. She said, well, I'm pretty nervous because I'm recovered from bulimia. And, and he didn't seem to understand really what that meant, put her on a full-blown elimination diet. She reached out to me. She had um, relapsed pretty significantly into her bulimia. Now, what she and I ended up doing together was really kind of um, kind of challenging because what she found is that when she removed all of these things from her diet, her physical symptoms, GI symptoms, actually went away and she felt a lot better. And so we were in this bind, right, in that it was unsustainable. She was then restricting and then she was binging and then she was sort of all over the place. She couldn't sustain it, um, but she wanted to be out of GI pain. And, and what we ended up finding out together is that when we really took an approach that looked at all of the different areas, we were able to help her find a pattern of eating that was thoughtful that worked for her, but wasn't nearly as restrictive. And so, for instance, we made sure that she was eating every three to four hours. And she noticed that when she went longer stretches of time, her GI symptoms were far worse. Well, as it turns out, that the digestive tract prefers during waking hours to be on a rhythm of eating approximately every four hours, give or take. And so when you're working with your body's natural rhythm, it's going to feel better. So we were able to integrate that. 
We also found that when she ate really balanced meals and snacks, meaning she had multiple food groups going on, she also felt physically better. So she had a meal that was just a big salad. She felt really terrible versus if she had a meal that was maybe just all starch, she also didn't feel well. But when she ate in a balanced way, that helped her. The other thing that we discovered was different types of food preparation. So for instance, um, for somebody who has a sensitive system, uh, raw fruits and vegetables can really take a toll. And so we shifted away from a lot of raw stuff, things like apples and raw kale, and got creative about, you know, less less sort of um, difficult to digest produce and things that were more cooked and sort of a little bit more prepared. That made a big difference. It also makes a big difference in terms of regulating movement and making sure that you're not sort of moving to either either extreme with over exercise and also sitting at one's desk all day long isn't great for digestion so taking you don't need to be neurotic about it but taking a moment where you're maybe standing up or you know taking a walk around the office or a rock or a walk around the block periodically she also needed to invest time in um, working on her stress reduction because she was extremely stressed out and I often say you know a stressed out person has a stressed out cut and then the other thing that we did is we integrated a couple of supplements a supplement that that is often helpful with IBS and um, and we tried on a probiotic. So we did all of these different things and tweaked it in such a way that we could help manage her symptoms. We did a couple of other things. We got her a squatty potty, <laughs> which we can talk about if it's interesting, you think. Um, and so we, we sort of pulled in as many different tools as we could and helped her to find a way of eating that was really manageable and enjoyable and then didn't fuel sort of the obsessive type of thinking or the way of eating that just wouldn't, wouldn't be sustainable for her. That's such a great story. I'm so glad you shared that. And just to sort of summarize what I'm hearing, you know, I'm thinking of the person listening who, who maybe has dabbled in some of this digestive health world and and maybe maybe they're kind of wondering what to do what what are some things to try uh in addition maybe to a food understanding what's going on with their food but what what else can a person do i heard you mention you know stress management making sure that that's um something you're at least working toward and and actively engaged in trying to manage and um i also heard um, gosh, oh, movement, moving your body, not, not either extreme too much or too little, but just, you know, somewhere in, in the middle that's right for you. And, uh, what are, what are some other things just so that someone listening can kind of say, okay, before I try cutting out just some entire food group, here are some other tools I can, I can work on. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing is, um, utilizing a squatty potty or a stool to go to the bathroom if they find that they are, yeah, explain that. Yes. They're having trapped gas or they're having constipation. So the way that our body's physiology works, and this is a little bit hard to describe, um, just verbally without, without a visual, but I'm going to do my best is at the very bottom of your digestive tract, is where your rectum and anus are. To be able to go to the bathroom, what happens is, is that we have this muscle that ropes around our rectum so that when we are standing up, sitting down, that sort of rope of muscle kinks 
that rectum so that it basically holds your poop inside of you. And um, when, when we go sit down to go to the bathroom, in an ideal world, we would be positioned like people were positioned for hundreds of thousands of years before we developed, you know, the very sophisticated porcelain throne, right? So they were in a deep squat. When you're in a deep squat to go to the bathroom, that, that muscle that loops around the rectum actually loosens up and it's much easier to go to the bathroom. So the squatty potty is really just a stool and it doesn't have to be a squatty potty that goes at the front of the toilet that you can prop your feet up on that gets your knees high enough for the muscle to disengage and makes it easier to go to the bathroom. So we find um, actually far fewer rates of digestive problems including constipation, including diverticulosis, and hemorrhoids, far lower rates in non-Western countries. Fascinating. I studied abroad in Thailand and I had to learn how to squat. It was quite the adjustment. Yeah. <laughs> You're yeah. like, really? And now, yeah, now hearing the science behind it and learning about that, it's just fascinating how how it's like, yeah, of course we would have evolved to, to go to the bathroom that way. That makes total sense. Makes total sense. So that's one little thing. The other thing that I would recommend is also talking with your PCP and ask about getting um, a referral, if possible, to a gastroenterologist, or you can talk for the for the women here, talk with a, a gynecologist or OBGYN. If you're having trouble with a lot of bloating, a lot of gas, if you're having trouble with going to the bathroom normally, or whether you're having diarrhea or constipation, um, because sometimes this can actually be tied up in your actual physical anatomy. And this is related to problems related to the pelvic floor. So it's known as uh, pelvic floor dysinertia or pelvic floor dysfunction. And when there's a problem with the muscles and with the nerves in the pelvic floor, it can create problems with digestion, and I can promise you there is not a single food you can take out of your diet that's going to fix that issue. So if you find that you get really bloated, you're not going to the bathroom normally, if you feel that your stomach kind of pouches out where you almost look pregnant, those are possible symptoms of problems going on with your pelvic floor that actually need to, need to get it properly assessed and treated by a pelvic floor specialist or physical therapist. So that's something else to consider. So advocating and asking questions. So, um, yeah, so you, wanna, you want to explore your, see if there's something going on physically with your anatomy. You want to explore something physically, like maybe just a different position and going to the bathroom could help various issues perhaps. Um, we, we mentioned managing stress. We mentioned movement. Another thing I would add is this is something that I think most people don't think about is if you're a recovering kind of chronic dieter um, or and or recovering from uh, a full-blown eating disorder, that's another thing to consider is you're, you will have some GI distress as your body yes. gets kind of used to eating again. You know, it's if you don't use it, you lose it, right? So... Or if you overuse it, it's it's very hard. If you're constantly, you know, eating more than you need to, there's going to be an adjustment in feeling, in in kind of 
feeding your body appropriately as well. And so on every end of the spectrum, changing your eating is you're going to feel it in your body. Don't you think? I totally think that. And and a couple more points that I sure. wanted to make that I think is important that you're just reminding me to emphasize is that um, I'm trying to decide which, which one I want to tackle first. But what one thing that's really important is that our digestion really likes routine. Now, some people are more sensitive and some people are less sensitive. And the less sensitive people really probably aren't even listening to this podcast episode because they're like, what are you crazy ladies talking about? You know, like it is it is no problem. But for those of you who feel like digestion is a problem, you are are likely a person who is overall a very sensing person, a highly feeling person. You experience things in, in a stronger way. And that has its advantages. That can be a wonderful gift in many ways. The downside is that it you require, in general, being a little bit more uh, a little bit more in routine for things to go smoothly. And that is also true for your digestion. And so, a sensitive person likely to have a sensitive gut. And the hard reality is that sensitive gut needs care, meaning. You just have to prioritize eating every few hours. You have to prioritize having balanced meals and snacks. You have to prioritize utilizing ways to try to bring your stress levels down through using mindfulness, using psychotherapy, you know, using deep breathing. Um, that it's you know similar to somebody who has ins- who is taking insulin for their diabetes. They have to be more mindful than the average person of how they sort of structure their eating, it's the same for somebody who is more prone to having problems with their digestion. It just takes a bit more care compared to the average person. And so it's sort of, I think, shifting your mindset that, you know, if you have a hectic day, as we all do, and it's been eight hours since your last meal, you know, don't be surprised if your stomach hurts. Um, right. I know. And then maybe try to avoid, you know, associating, oh, it must be because I ate this food I vilified or something. Oh my gosh, right? yes. I, we had pasta for dinner and then my stomach hurt. And it's like, well, hold that pasta in context. What was your day like? How long had it been since you had eaten before that, right? I know exactly. for me, my biggest recipe for having stomach pain is if I get really hungry and I'm not able to eat and I go way past hunger what happens is that I have a lot of pain in my stomach and I actually get filled up with a lot of air and it's quite painful. And so I know for me that patterning is really important. And that is very, very, very common for people who have more sensitive guts. So really focusing on that timing. And then also, you know, another thing to consider is whether or not doing some, um, trying a couple of supplements might help. It might not help. You know, there's some research to support the use of, um, but some of the research isn't the strongest. So people often ask me, I don't know if you get asked this question, Paige, um, like, oh, should I be taking a probiotic? I don't, do you ever get that question? Oh yeah, totally. Talk about that a little bit. That'd be great. Yeah. Um, so I will tell people uh, that we right now do not have the research to say everybody should be taking a probiotic. 
probiotics are relatively expensive. You know, they're about a dollar a pill. So for some people, that's not a lot of money. But for other people, that really adds up and is a lot of money. And so I don't like recommending things just for the sake of recommending them. The thing that I like to explain about probiotics is that the research on probiotics are done on specific bacterial strains in specific dosages to treat specific symptoms. So you might pick up a probiotic and be taking it because you get bloated, but for all we know, that probiotic has only been researched to treat something else entirely. And so who knows whether or not it's helpful. So I I don't necessarily say everybody go on a probiotic. However, and this kind of can get a little bit detailed, there there is a a really great app that I think is worth checking out if somebody's interested in in looking at this a little bit more. It's called the Probiotic. I think it's a clinical guide to probiotics or probiotic products where you can go and search and search under a symptom and see what brands are recommended and look at the strength of the research. So you at least can be thoughtful about great. why That's you're taking it. Yeah. I'll, so you can, I'll link to that. That's a really cool resource. I didn't know about that. Yeah, it's a it's a great resource. And it's a little it would think be a little bit too hard for me in the context of the of the podcast to say, oh, well, there's good good research on on this one for this. And it, I think it can get a little yeah. bit. A little no, that's confusing. fine. It's just it's a kind of a trendy topic, too. I mean, that's one of those things people like to just throw out there like, oh, you want, you have this ailment, take a probiotic. Yeah. It's kind of like Windex, you know, exactly. from totally. like Fat Greek Wedding. It's like, yeah, here's yeah. your problem, like have a probiotic. Exactly. So. Um, you know, often another one that you hear is, you know, digestive enzymes. So people are like, what about digestive enzymes? That is another, you know, semi-complicated um, question. I don't really think there's any harm in trying a digestive enzyme. You can buy one that is like a broad spectrum digestive enzyme and try taking it with your meals and just observe whether it helps. You know, that if essentially enzymes help break down your food. So if for some reason you have, you know, lower digestive enzymes, um, supplementing could be like a little boost. It could help. Um, but it's, it's pretty difficult to figure out whether or not you actually are having low enzymes or whether the cause is something else. So it can be a little bit like whack-a-mole. Um, so that, that's something to consider. Another actually supplement that I think is pretty great, um, is a supplement that is used to treat IBS and it's called Iberogast and I can send you information page to link to it. And it's an herbal supplement that is, has a few different herbals combined together to treat the symptoms of IBS. The one thing I will just note really quickly about IBS is that IBS, careful not to just self-diagnose IBS. I, IBS is considered a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning you've excluded every other possibility of your digestive issues being attributable to something else. And sort of the, the last thing 
that we can categorize it as if we if we've sort of exhausted our options is IBS. So you just want to be careful that it's not due to say overgrowth of bacteria in your small intestine, right? Small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or it's not due to a lactose intolerance, or it's not due to celiac disease, or it's not due um, to a motility issue that a gastroenterologist that would pick up, or it's not due to you know, an anatomical issue within your pelvic floor, you know, that you want to rule out these other things before sort of just placing band-aids on what seem like difficult to sort of treat symptoms. Yeah, that's a really, really important point. So any other supplements you wanted to talk about? Or is that kind of, I think, I think that's a really good rounded thing. I just want to see if you have any others. No, there wasn't anything else specifically. I mean, we could, we could detail out a a few others, but those to me are the ones that I think are are most important to talk about that tend to be the most, most common. I like that. Okay. I do want to talk about one thing in particular, one symptom that I think people read into a bunch that I just want to talk about, because I know you'll have some really interesting things to say about it. So this symptom is bloating. What is bloating? What is gas? What's normal? Let's talk about that. You know, bloating is um, a very, it's a nebulous thing (laughs) because bloating is one very individual depending on how a person is experiencing it. And it can be caused by lots of different things. So bloating could be air that's sort of building up in your system that shouldn't be there, that can be located in your stomach, it can be located in your small intestine, it can be located in your large intestine, but it's also accompanied by fluid. So it's kind of a combination of air and fluid. And um, to some extent, some bloating can be normal, right? So you eat a meal, your stomach is filled up, You want to be careful that that's not being misinterpreted as bloating. That's just a natural experience of having food in your stomach, right? Right. That's an Uh, important thing to say. You know, people associate, because it is a nebulous term, people might say, oh, well, I I got to the point of fullness, which is appropriate and and fine, and then tell themselves, oh, I'm so bloated, and and maybe start blaming things for that, you know? Yes, yes. So I want... For my clients to feel full after a meal, that's the goal, (laughs) is to feel like your stomach is full, not that you're in pain, you know, not that you're sort of stuffed to the brim, but there's a sense of fullness and heaviness, and that that typically lasts, you know, depending on the size of the meal, but that initial sense of fullness before the real sort of digestion has gotten going is a good 20 to 30 minutes, right, that that you feel full. But bloating is almost a sensation. I think about it almost like you feel as if you've been pumped full of air, you know, that you could just imagine, oh my gosh, if I could just sort of stick a hole in my stomach, I would be so relieved because I could just imagine all of this air coming out, Um, which is, I think, a, a distinctly different sensation than having food in one's stomach. So when I'm assessing, I'm often asking my clients to point where they're experiencing that sensation of bloating. Um, is it up high? Is it in the middle? Is it down low? Is it to the side? Um, I'm also asking about whether or not it's associated with any sort of pain and what alleviates it. And just to appreciate that, you know, having a little burping is normal. Having some farting is normal. Um, that we want to make sure that we're not getting too worried about 
you know, in in the minutia and sort of overly worrying about what are, you know, pretty, pretty normal body processes. And um, it's so interesting, Marcy, because you can, I've actually had, had clients that I've worked with who develop such an awareness and sensitivity to what's going on in their GI system that they are privy to feelings that most people would never even know what's going on and so there can be like a dysfunctional like too strong of a connection that you can have with the feelings in your body is that a controversial thing to say or what do you what do you think about that well the way that I think about it is that some some people and this actually kind of correlates with the the theory of IBS and what IBS is, is that it is an increased sensitivity and an increased awareness of what's happening in one's digestive system. And it's also experienced as painful. So for some people, their body is over communicating the details of the digestive process to the brain. Right. That's a better way to say it. Yeah. That's kind of what I meant. Yeah, and the brain is then interpreting it as a problem. And so one of the really difficult things about working with someone with IBS is that they have this system that's an over-communicator. And so it's not that anything wrong or bad is happening. It's the, the body is experiencing it as wrong or bad. And sometimes, you know, removing one or two foods might help. So someone might notice, oh, my gosh, every time I eat apples, I'm doubled over in pain. Okay, well, maybe we don't do raw apples. Um, But then we're utilizing some of those other techniques that we talked about to help manage it. And and that's when you also want to work with a specialist because for some people, they really find that utilizing medication is very, very helpful. And we didn't talk about that prescribed medications. But for some people, that really becomes quite necessary. So it's, it's not like it is, a, it, is a, it is a real thing. It's, just, it's a hypersensitivity, um, which is really tough. Oh, my gosh, that's tough. Right. Yeah. And another thing I wanted to mention about bloating is there is such a thing as too many vegetables, you know, and like you mentioned earlier, um, raw vegetables can for some people be a little bit more um, difficult for them to digest. And you might notice that in the way that you feel. Some of the people that complain the most about bloating in my in my experience have been once we dig deep and kind of take a look at what they're eating, it's just an inordinate amount of vegetables. So I think that's an important thing to keep in mind too. As someone's navigating, okay, I'm having these, I'm having these symptoms. Make sure that you're eating adequate amounts of food because starvation can definitely or or chronically undereating can manifest itself in some of these kind of nebulous symptoms, but then also over overdoing it on things that are supposedly quote unquote good for you can also produce some symptoms that are not fun. Oh, yes. Well said. <laughs> Absolutely. And again, I know I'm, I'm sounding a little bit like a broken record, but that's where, you know, sometimes it really can be helpful to work with a professional to help you sort out what the right balance is for you that certainly we want to get enough nutrition in. Um, but also the right balance that often people will say, well, I'm constipated. I need more fiber. And the type of fiber they're getting in is actually making it worse. It's actually heightening and worsening their constipation. So it can get it can get a little bit tricky. But one of the things that often goes undetected is when people um, maybe have a long-term dieting history and they are just not eating enough. And it's, you know, no wonder why they don't have regular bowel movements. They're not having big enough meals. Oh, so true. Not- that is so important. 
to move it through. And right. it's like, well, you know, you're having this problem, not because something is wrong with your body, but we, we have to increase your nutrition and we have to have, you know, the right balance of nutrients. And that regular it's, eating that you mentioned earlier too, yeah. where yeah. your body is on that schedule um, with eating so that it, so that it knows, okay, we're, we're going to get food every four ish hours and, and it'll be all good, you know? Yes. And one of the things that I should add that I, that I think is really interesting that I've learned is that there are two kind of phenomenon that happen within the body and they're technical names. It's not really worth mentioning, but what I've learned is that the digestion process really goes much better when you are feeding yourself full meals. And if you are having problems with your digestion, the grazing pattern, and this is not always, this is not, this is not all of the time. It's not black and white, but some problems are worsened by grazing because it's not actually signaling to your body the process of moving things down. So if you've ever had the experience of waking up in the morning and you don't need to go to the bathroom, but then you eat breakfast and then you need to go to the bathroom. What's been stimulated is what's called the gastrocolic reflex. And that's basically telling your system, all right, here comes the nutrition, make, make room for it. And so without that meal, if you're just doing these little nibbles, that reflex isn't actually stimulated. Oh, that is, that is another one that I just love because I feel like in our world, we just glorify this idea of like small, frequent meals. And not that, not that that's necessarily bad. Some people that works really great for. I know for me, it doesn't work great. I like feeling satisfied and full after a meal. I do not like kind of being halfway and kind of neutral all day. I, I, I do feel kind of sick to my stomach when I do that grazing pattern. And it's very interesting to understand you know, the connection of my, what my intuition tells me about how to feed myself. Um, when you look at the, at, at the things that you're talking about, like with that sweeping mechanism that happens in the, the small intestine that doesn't get triggered until we've spent a few hours not eating something, right? Yep. Yep. That's exactly right. And, and that's my, my personal preference as well, that I do much better get hungry, have a really solid meal that makes me full and I feel satisfied. Um, and then I don't have to, I don't have to think about food or, or deal with food. I, I physically feel better. I mentally feel better, you know, for a couple hours and then, you know, I'm, I'm ready for more, but I don't feel well when I don't actually get to that place of feeling like I've been, I've been fully nourished. And I've noticed for my own self, just sort of anecdotally that physically I feel better as well. Yep. Me too. Okay. So one more question for you. If there's someone listening who says, okay, this is great information, I love kind of learning about all the other things to look at, but at the end of the day, I do have this intolerance or this uh, mm -hmm. food that I know just really, really does not agree with my body. Um, what, I, I feel like that's in and of itself just such a tough issue to have something that you know you can't really tolerate very well. How do you navigate this idea of emotional eating and, and being at peace with your food. How do you do that when you know that there's something that you just really can't do? Yeah, it is a very, very difficult um, bind to be in. You know, my sister-in-law has celiac disease. There is no way around it. She has celiac disease. She cannot eat gluten. And that sucks. 
it totally sucks, right? I have an uncle and he has type 1 diabetes and he has to manage his nutrition in a very specific way to, to manage with the with his uh, blood sugars. And so there are certainly times in which a person just cannot tolerate something and they just can't have it a part of their diet and that's a real thing. And, the, and in short, in a sort of short recommendation, what I recommend is making sure that you are regularly incorporating things that you love to eat that feel so genuinely enjoyable and deeply satisfying and that you're meeting that need in a regular way on a regular basis as best as you can. You know, when I was working with a client previously who had a long list of food allergies um, who that had been diagnosed by an allergist and she had um, a long history with an eating disorder and we really had to spend some time parsing out the difference between an allergy versus a restriction that she had followed from her eating disorder. You have another client with Crohn's disease and we were able to sort of have some good frank conversations about foods that she had been avoiding that really had more to do with rules that she had constructed in her mind and had nothing to do with her Crohn's. And so our work together was on trying to create as much flexibility and as much variety with the foods that her body could tolerate and get rid of those dieting rules. You know, it's like she hadn't eaten a yes. hamburger in years, but there was no reason because of her Crohn's not to have a hamburger. You know, so we had to really work on giving permission to a wide variety of foods and really paying close attention to that since the natural consequence of removing other foods out because of a medical condition just it, it becomes really necessary and it's a, it's a really tough thing to navigate. Tough and it requires so much honesty and introspection and um, awareness and kind of like curiosity to figure it out, you know, because there it can totally be wrapped up in in some type of sort of like I'm trying to manipulate my body here um, type of thing. And oh, how convenient I have this diagnosis that helps me wrap wrap things neatly up into this package so that people don't question my restriction. And so exactly. in order to untangle that and look, take a take a deep hard look at it it does require a lot of that, that work of introspection and honesty, but it's doable. It's definitely doable. And you're not, you know, you're not, um, unable to participate in the idea of being at peace with food and the idea of loving your body and treating it well and, um, intuitive eating and all of that stuff. You can do that and still have, you know, yeah. celiac disease or whatever it may be. So yeah, you're not doomed. Yeah, and, exactly. And it's legitimately challenging. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. I love it. That's such a, that's such a great way to say it. Marcy, you are fantastic. This has been so fascinating. Do you have anything else that is just huge that we need to hit on? Or do you think we did an okay job kind of Gosh, we covered this. it. I think we, okay. I mean, we, of course we could talk for hours yeah. and hours and hours. I hope it felt clear. I hope it felt useful. You know, this to kind me. of a conversation by nature is a challenging conversation because the subject matter is challenging. It's nuanced. It's multifaceted. It's sort of hard to get our hands around. So if anything, we hope that we've just, you know, given or I hope I've given your listeners maybe a new way to think about it, things to allow them to percolate, to pay attention to, to, uh, you know, to be aware of and, and just kind of be, be opening to exploring their experience in a way that, that is maybe coming at it from a different angle than they were before. Perfect. That's, that beautifully summarizes my intention here too. And again, I think that this is a, is a, another kind of popular trendy thing that's, that's out there in the world and something to just talk about and, and help each other navigate because it's it's 
tricky when it's disguised sometimes as, oh, it's just gut health, or oh, it's just clean eating, or oh, it's just this, this or that. And it can get really, really confusing. So I'm, I'm grateful for your time today in helping us talk about this really important subject. Awesome. Well, it's been, it's been a total pleasure to chat with you as always. Oh, thanks, Marcy. So take a minute and tell people about how to keep in touch with you and also anything that's new on the horizons for you with your business and your work. Yeah, thank you. So um, please connect with me. I am my website's the marciard.com, M-A-R-C-I-R-D.com. And I'm super excited because my brand new site just launched. Uh, so come check it out. It's actually fun because what I one of the things I love about my new site is that I have a resources page. So you can link, scroll down to the bottom of the site and on the bottom left-hand side, you can click on resources. And I have some freebies there. I actually have a couple of little mindfulness meditations that you can download and a couple of um, actually resources for specifically for dietitians uh, that could be interesting. And then I'm really excited because I have an Paige, you know this, I have an online training that teaches dietitians how to counsel people with eating disorders and my new and improved beautiful 2.0 version, if all goes well, will be launching on October 1st. So stay tuned for those details. And, you know, please connect with me on social media. My handle on, I think, all things social media is at MarcyRD. And I love hearing from people who have listened to me talk and, you know, send me questions. Tell me what you want to hear more about. And, um, you know, I'd love, I'd love to hear your responses and experiences. So I'm, I'm pretty easy to reach. Great. And I just love the work you do, Marcy. And I'm so grateful that you spent some time with us today talking about this really important topic. And I know it's going to resonate with people. This is, this is on people's minds right now. So thank you for that. Awesome. Thanks again. Take care. Well, I sincerely hope you've enjoyed this conversation. If you haven't already, please go ahead and leave a review on iTunes. Thanks again so much for listening and we'll see you soon for another episode.